Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Chalk Talk Podcast. This is Doug Farrar with Sports Illustrated with our good friend Greg Cosell of NFL Films and ESPN's NFL Matchup. After a brief hiatus, Greg, we're back in the hunt, back in the regular season, back talking about real, actual, gosh darn football. We have a, se- or a, a week to go with. And, uh, boy, let, let's, uh, let's get rolling. And I want to start with... Denver at Kansas City, which is about three hours away after as we tape this. And I want to start with, and this is something we discussed a lot last year, it, the whole Peyton Manning, is he done, blah, blah, blah. Yep. You know, the, the stats have been down. Clearly, the arm strength is not what it was. And I remember you telling me more than once last year that people you talked to in the league believe that Manning's existence in the NFL at all at this point is a function of his acuity and his knowledge of the game, that if he was less savvy about the way things went, he might not be around anymore. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the things that stood out to me when I watched that tape this week is it made me wonder, in this new system with Gary Kubiak, how much is Peyton orchestrating the game at the line of scrimmage? I don't think he's doing it anywhere near as much as he did in the past. Uh, I, I, it didn't look to me like he did a lot at the line of scrimmage before the snap. And when you play a team like the Ravens, who are very multiple with their pressures and their fronts and their coverages, then I think his ability to do that changes the equation, but I'm not sure, and this is something you don't know for a fact, but it it just didn't look to me like in this offense at this point that he was doing the kinds of things he did in the past, that very often he was running the called play. Well, it was I mean, because you could certainly see hallmarks of the Kubiak offense that I was really wondering if they work when you retrofit them on to Manning at any point in his era. Like, okay, weak side boot right? Really? That was, that was interesting to see how, you, you know, obvious Kubiak elements – were right. factored in, and I'm not sure they work for this particular. Yeah, there was one bootleg to his left, actually, where uh, he, he missed a wide open uh, Demarius Thomas because he couldn't get his body turned. But yeah. that's not his throw. Um, but you know, the Ravens blitz blitzed a high percentage. In fact, they ended the game blitzing over 38 percent of men's dropbacks. Uh, they gave them a lot of looks, and, and I thought that. Um, you know, that caused some issues, and it made me think that normally if Peyton orchestrates at the lamp scrimmage, you don't see as many free rushers, if any free rushers, coming after Peyton Manning. And there were a number of plays in this game where there were free rushers at Manning. Well, that's an interesting subject because you and I discussed for multiple years how Manning creates less pressure with his play calls at the line. I see this blitzing, you know, I, I see this do leg at blitz. I can tell from whatever tells I have that both of them are coming. They're not going to drop back. So I need to defer to this Texas route or this quick flare or right. whatever it is. And if they don't let him do that behind a very inexperienced offensive line, I think he's in big trouble. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I mentioned the amount of blitz. It was 17 blitzes overall, and Manning was 5 for 14 for 39 yards versus the blitz with three sacks. And normally when you blitzed Manning, he saw it coming, he knew where it was coming from, and he was able to defeat it. And that was not the case, obviously, in this game, which that's what made me think about whether he's actually doing things at the line or not. Now, there were a couple of plays uh, where the O-line, it just, was bad. I mean, uh, there was an Evan Mathis play where he could not block the rookie from Iowa, Carl Davis, where 
it was a, a post-cross combination, that, and, and Sanders was wide open to throw Manning could make blindfolded, but he had no chance. And if, if that ball had been completed, the way the coverage laid out, that might have been a 74-yard touchdown, and we might be having a different conversation. So to, to wrap that up, it, you know, it, we talk about this all the time about coaches adapting to their quarterbacks, and, and certainly in this case you want to adapt to the guy you have both because of his legacy and because of his current limitations. I mean, it, it, it speaks to what is Kubiak's responsibility and, and how is this going to work because it, it, it looked – I think you intimated it, and it, it it looked that way to me too. It just looked like an odd fit. Yeah, and again, you know, you and I—it's not a matter of, of criticizing coaches. I don't no. do that. No. Um, and you would think tonight's game, if we just look ahead for a minute, could pose some issues because Bob Sutton has experience in, in, in the uh, – and he's the D.C. for the Chiefs. He has experience with Rex Ryan. I think they'll be pressures. I think when you play an arrowhead, their outside rushers, Houston and Holly, tend to get off the ball before your tackles do at, at times. And we saw that last year on the Monday night game when they played the Patriots uh, in, in that blowout game. I think it was week four or five. And so tonight is a tough match matchup because I think they're going to play man coverage and they're going to make Peyton have to make some stick throws and they're going to pressure. So tonight could be a difficult matchup. Yep, very definitely. Um, what are your thoughts about Travis Kelsey and where he is in the pantheon of tight ends? Well, I think he's a really uh, athletic tight end who can who can run. And I think, you know, again, when, when tight ends make big plays, you have to look at the plays. And I don't know if you got a chance to see that long touchdown. It was a really well-designed concept. It's, it's almost a staple route concept for the Chiefs. It ends up being a three-level stretch. But there's, there's some wrinkles to it that make it difficult to defend. And on that particular play, uh, Kelsey did such a good job of showing one kind of route and then breaking to the outside that they broke down the Texans' zone concept. And, you know, obviously it looked like a bust, and theoretically it's a mistake by a particular defender. But I think that Andy Reid does a really good job designing things for Travis Kelsey. You know, that play is a staple. It works almost every time. <laughs> I've seen it last year, and you've probably seen it too, where he breaks outside, and it, it, it seems to work almost every Every time they call it. Yep. Now, for those who haven't really seen Travis Kelsey, you may just heard and he scored two touchdowns, and everyone's still, you know, is he the next big guy behind Gronkowski and Graham? Is he more a Graham type, more a Tyler Eifert type? What what kind of tight end is he in your mind? I think that's a pretty good comparison. I think Eifert and Kelsey are both big guys who are very athletic, uh, and I think they're they're the higher end of athletes for the tight end position. Um, you know, Eifert is is. His athleticism really stood out this week as well. You know, I think those are the kinds of tight ends that teams have no problem splitting out, even if they're matched on corners. Uh, Eifert, one of Eifert's touchdowns this week came where he was split out as the single receiver. I believe it was the opposite side of trips, but I may be wrong, but he was definitely split wide right, and he got matched up on a corner, and, was, and they threw him a touchdown. So, you know, those tight ends, Kelsey, Eifert, teams do that with those receivers, and they and they feel comfortable that even if you get a corner, uh, that they can win. For those who haven't listened to the podcast before, I mean, this is a matchup podcast. We're not going to go heavily into every game. We're going to talk more concepts and, you know, things we saw and branch onto that. Houston at Carolina, I don't really have a lot to say here. I mean, Carolina's secondary, which I thought was really great last year, looked, you know, they looked good and had good, they were playing Jacksonville. 
You know, I, I, I'm not, you know, J.J. Watt up against, uh, you know, Eric Fisher's backup and, and whatnot. I don't know if you have anything uh, regarding that. Well, the only thing I'd say up in Carolina, and, and I'm a big fan of Sean McDermott and, and that defense and how disciplined they are. Uh, they're not a high-percentage blitz defense, although he certainly has experience with Jim Johnson in Philadelphia, but, but maybe he doesn't feel he has the, the personnel to play that way, so he selectively blitzes. But the one concern as they go down the road, and maybe it's not this week, maybe it's, you know, but it's a concern, depending on your opponent, is their starting safeties are Kurt Coleman and Roman Harper, and they don't have any speed at that position. So now you're playing defense to compensate for the lack of speed at the safety position, and somewhere along the line, that can be exploited. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's Ryan Mallett this week, so the revolving door of Houston quarterbacks continues. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, I, again, you know, other than hard knocks, none of us really know what happened inside the, the Texans. Uh, Mallet is, is certainly the better thrower. He gives you more dimensions in the pass game. And if Brian Hoyer is going to make mistakes, both mental and physical, then it makes sense to play Ryan Mallet. Yeah. Uh, San Francisco at Pittsburgh, and both of these teams were very surprising to me for different reasons uh, in their first game. Pittsburgh, the defensive breakdowns against them were, wow. And then San Francisco, first, I mean, we knew Navarro Bowman was great, but my goodness. And I think on both sides of the ball, San Francisco played better than a lot of people, including me, anticipated. I want to start with Colin Kaepernick, who appeared to have, and I don't know if this was him or the defense he was playing or the structure G. Chris gave him or a combination thereof, appeared to have more aware pocket presence, was reading things a little bit, maybe seemed a little bit more comfortable. What was your impression of Kaepernick against the Vikings? Uh, a couple of times, uh, that's true, but I think that um, the 49ers offense, the way they play, and I, and I thought that they, of, of the games that I watched on film, I, I thought that the 49ers, as a defined profile, may have been the best team. Uh, and when I, I don't mean that they were the best team in the league, but they, they clearly had a defined profile and template for how they wanted to play. I mean, think about this, Doug, in this year. It's 2015, okay? The 49ers lined up with three tight ends on 28 snaps. Yep. I mean, that's unheard of in today's NFL. And they ran the ball really effectively out of it. 19 rushes for 111 yards. Uh, they started the game that way because they wanted to establish tempo. They wanted to establish an attitude. This is the way we play. We're physical. And so this is an offense that has low explosive potential, both by design and by Kaepernick's skill set. Now, they, they, they'll do a shot play here and there, but they're not a highly schemed pass game. Uh, and I think they're going to rely on the run game, and they're going to play to Kaepernick's strengths, uh, which, of course, is his movement, and they'll give him some boot action. They'll use some read option. But I think, ultimately, they're plenty defensively to maximize his strengths and minimize his limitations. He's not, he's not really a high-level quarterback. I don't want to say passer, but he, he's not a high-level quarterback, so... He, you have to minimize his limitations. Now, not every game will play out this way. You know, it's like Buffalo. I really like to ride Taylor in the preseason, and I thought he played extremely well week one. But the game played out in a way in which those quarterbacks did not have to do things beyond what the, the team wanted them to do. Yeah. 
Um, Pittsburgh's defense against New England, I mean, obviously the, the breakdowns against Gronkowski were just odd. And a lot of players and coaches talked about miscommunication. Is this, in your mind, a product of, I mean, Keith Butler's been in that system, the former linebackers coach, now defensive coordinator. Is that, but still that said, is the miscommunication a product of a, a new coordinator? Because it's kind of like with, um, in Seattle, there were some missteps I saw Chris yep. Richard has been in that system a lot. He moves from a secondary coach to defensive coordinator. You still have a guy who's putting his imprint on it. And I think week one, you see a lot of teams kind of zigging when they should zag because they've been zigging for three years. And now it's so with Pittsburgh's defense, what did you see that spoke to you of singular missed assignments as opposed to everyone still getting trying to get used to the new guy? I think the Steelers struggled with a couple of things, and, and that's why you have to be careful when you discuss a team week one, even week two, is is it the nature of the given matchup or is there a particular issue? Because clearly what the Steelers struggled with against the Patriots was they struggled to defend empty sets and they struggled to defend the selective speed tempo that the, the Patriots use. So that's what they struggled with in that game. Now, not every team is going to go empty, and not every team is going to go selective speed tempo. So, do the, do the Steelers have work to do? Of course. But, you know, this was a matchup in which I think the nature of the opponent caused them some problems. Um, Seattle is a really interesting situation, and you're, you're close to that, that whole scenario. Um, it's easy to put the blame on Cam Chancellor, but... When you watch them play and you see what their nickel package is, you know, for a minute I had to go, what? Yeah. I mean, they had Richard Sherman in the slot in nickel and Shed and Williams on the outside. And in all honesty, you have to say that right now their two outside corners in nickel are probably not what you want. That Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get to that matchup when we talk about Seattle-Green Bay. But um, San Francisco-Pittsburgh, uh, if you had said two weeks ago that San Francisco looks like the better team, you'd get a lot of strange looks, but it, it kind of might appear that way. Well, just one comment on San Francisco's defense. We talked about yeah. their offense. Eric Mangini was a very multiple and creative, far more so than Vic Fangio uh, last year. Now, they're both very, very good. I mean, I think Fangio is one of the best in the league. It's just different. And, and Mangini blitzed a lot more. He disguised a lot more. He was creative. They used Tart, the rookie safety from Sanford, as their dime linebacker, essentially the way the Cardinals used Dion Buchanan last year. And I think he's going to fit that role really, really well. Yep, because he's a hitter. He's a downhill kid, and he just, you know. And he moves better. You know, it's like Buchanan. When he came out of Washington State, uh, you know, the, the Everybody said, oh, he can't play, you know, deep safety. Well, maybe he's not a single high safety. Same with Tart. Everybody said, oh, you know, he can't play. These guys move a little bit better than you think. I mean, you know, everybody wants the ideal at deep safety. There are not that many ideals. Uh, these guys are, you know, don't forget these guys are long. They're tall. So they have length. It's like Tim McDonald in, in, in uh, St. Louis. Yeah. You know, you, uh, you don't necessarily see, not Tim McDonald, you know what I mean. T.J. McDonald. Yeah. What's that? TJ, his son, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. I just aged myself there, but uh, you, you know what I meant. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, these guys, they're not explosive the way Earl Thomas is explosive, but because of their length and their stride, they cover more ground than you think. Yeah, Tart and Buchanan are, are similar in a way. I mean, I remember watching Buchanan at WSU, at Washington State, and thinking, God, if anyone ever puts a GPS in this kid, he's going to be unholy because he's just so dynamic. And yep. 
it's a little different when you're you're put in a particular spot. And I, I like that sort of dime linebacker idea where, it, where it's just a different thing. Moving to Tampa Bay at New Orleans, and I want to talk less about this particular matchup than what you saw, because obviously we're going to talk about Tennessee, Tampa Bay, and the Marietta-Winston battle. Um, and I think there, there's an issue that I've had with Tampa Bay's offensive structure going back a few years where I don't see a lot of receivers schemed open. I don't see a lot of easily definable open reads for quarterbacks. It's a lot of ISO stuff. It's a lot of have the receiver beat uh, the coverage in a physical battle. And I think that was, I think, I mean, Winston made his own mistakes, but I thought it kind of did him a disservice. What did you see from their passing game? Yeah, and, and there's a couple of issues here, first of all. I mean, I think when you have Evans and Jackson, you, you kind of feel that that's not a bad way to play because they're, they're big, they're physical, they both run well for men that size, and as we've discussed many times when you're that big, you can make contested catches, you can win isolation routes. So I, I don't necessarily think that that's automatically a terrible thing. Obviously, Evans did not play last week. Right. Um, they're starting two rookies on their O-line, Smith at left tackle and Mark at right guard. Their O-line is not very good at this point in time. I, I personally think Mark Pitt has a chance to be a good player down the road. Um, I think ultimately when you when you look at, um, at Jameis Winston, he's not the kind of quarterback that can compensate for a less than average offensive line. Yeah. Uh, he lacks natural quickness and explosive lower body movement. He's not, he's not that guy. And I think what really stands out on film, he struggles when he's under center and that's a problem for them because they want to run the ball because when he drops back from under center, Doug, the one thing, and this is, you know, you don't have to be a great athlete to, to, be able to, you know, hit your back foot, plan, shift your weight. I mean, you don't have to be a great athlete to do that. You know, Carson Palmer is pristine when he does all this, and no one would say Carson Palmer is a great athlete the way we think of great athletes. Uh, but what Jameis Winston has a tendency to do, which in, in college is, is irrelevant, is he sort of has to gather himself when he hits his back foot. Uh-huh. And when you lose a beat or two in college, it doesn't show up. When you lose a beat or two in the NFL, it can kill you. Yeah. And he's going, you know, whether it's possible to change that, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it is or it isn't. You know, I don't know enough about, you know, sports science and all that stuff. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say that it can't change, but it's going to have to change or he's going to have problems. Yeah. Uh, Detroit at Minnesota. Minnesota, talk about teams that seemed off-kilter. Minnesota seemed off-kilter on both sides of the ball against San Francisco on Monday night. Yeah, they were, they were manhandled uh, physically on the defensive side, and it was not it's not a good week this week, I'm sure, if you're a Viking defender, because of Mike Zimmer, it was probably not a very nice man this week. No. Um, offensively, they, it was very interesting to me, let's put it that way, that they did not come out and try to establish a base run game out of base personnel. They didn't do that. They came out, they spread it out. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater did not play well at all. No, he didn't. He, he played off balance. He didn't have his feet under him. He didn't see things well. He missed, you know, again, it's the, the old uh, thing I've said to you many times that there's no st- statistic for throws that should be made that aren't made. Uh-huh. Bridgewater fit that profile in this game. He missed a seam route, wide open touchdown to Jarius Wright. 
right, and only he can tell you why he didn't throw it, but he missed it. And so he he had a poor game. Can't argue with that. Um, it, was, it was very clear. Um, Detroit obviously had the the collapse against San Diego. Philip Rivers had it went off, uh, won the AFC Offensive Player of the Week. Keenan Allen caught you know four hundred bazillion passes. Um, and Jim Caldwell said today that one of Stafford's interceptions were, was caused by arm numbness. I'm, I'm more interested in Detroit's defense because this is one of the best and most underrated defenses last year. What in your mind? You're talking about San Diego. Yeah. Well, what in your mind yeah. was the cause of that Detroit defensive collapse? What happened? Well, first of all, Rivers. Rivers was so good. We see what, what they're really good at, and this is why it's going to be really interesting as the year progresses with this team, with, with Melvin Gordon, because they're really at their best when Rivers is in the gun and Danny Woodhead is next to him, mm-hmm. because Woodhead gives you so much in all facets of the game. Running inside, he's way better than you might think given his short stature. He's really good in pass protection because he understands pass protection, and he's a really good receiver. So they're really at their best when Woodhead is is flanking Rivers and and Rivers in the second half last week was just pinpoint. I believe he was twenty one for twenty three in the second half. And other than maybe one or two throws, everything was quick rhythm, quick tempo, a lot of play action. Uh, it, I believe, and I could be off on this number, but I think he was twelve for twelve off play action for one hundred and thirty yards. And these were not big time downfield throws. You know, they weren't shot play play actions. They were shotgun play actions and quick rhythm throws. Well, I'm I'm pulling up the stats as I say this, so uh, I'll do that and pull up the stats. But last year, Rivers was, by all accounts, one of one of the, if not the most productive and efficient play action quarterbacks in the NFL, and they barely used it. And it just it, it yeah. Let's see, seven point eight percent of the time he used play action. This is per Pro Football Focus. Completed, this is ridiculous, Greg, 40 of 48 passes, four touchdowns, no interceptions in play action. And they used it on, yeah, he, he completed 18.4% more of his passes, uh, three yards per attempt uh, more. And obviously you're dealing with a small sample size. That's going to get shaved down if you do it 200 right. times. But... I'm I'm kind of and I I I wrote about this in the off season and people go, oh Frank Reich isn't you know this or that and I don't you know Mike McCoy knows what the hell he's doing so what in your mind prevents them from using more play action whether it's pistol shotgun you know eye formation I don't care split back well you want. if you solely go by week one, then they're going to exceed those numbers pretty quickly. So maybe in the offseason doing self-scouting, they feel, hey, we were really good at this, let's do more of it. So I, you know, I can't answer why they didn't do more of it last year, but they're uh, very, very good at it. And my guess is a very high percentage of that would be would be out of shotgun play action, not with him under center. Yep, here it is, uh, Pro Football Focus, 27.3% play action in the opener, 12 of 12, and a touchdown. Yeah, so there you go. Just what I said, twelve and twelve for hundred thirty yards. Yeah, yeah. I did that from the film, you know, as opposed to looking up the numbers. But uh, uh, so the numbers match obviously the film study. But yeah, I mean, if they continue at this pace, they're obviously exceeding those numbers really early in the season. And that's bad news for San Diego's opponents, I think, because that's uh... you know, and and it's funny because we're actually doing something on this in the matchup show this week. If I could shamelessly self promote, because we want to we want to show 
show people why linebackers and, and underneath defenders react to this because their their shotgun play action is really good, and it's not just a function of the fact that he sticks the ball in the belly of Woodhead. If you watch the O line, they'll fire forward. They look like they're double teaming in the run game. They'll do a lot of it with a gap scheme look where they pull the guard. It really looks like a run for the first second or so of the play. Are they are using run action? Oh yeah, it's, it's just in the shotgun, but it's it's yeah, it's run action. Because that's what cracks me up. You can't use play action from shotgun or pistol. Or if you use run action, you really fool a lot of defenses. Run action, and that's just what, to specify, yeah. you're doing play action, you're doing a play action pass, but your blockers are firing forward as if you're running, and that's where I see linebackers bite on stuff like crazy. Right, and that's why that's why the argument about, oh, you have to run the ball well is, is a myth, because the linebackers are not sitting around in, the, in a defensive huddle saying, they've only run the ball eight times for nine yards, so when we see the offensive line fire out, we don't have to worry about the run game. No, they're reacting to keys. And that's why there's a difference between play action and run action. Run action, the offensive line really makes it look like a running play. Play action is just the quarterback faking the ball to the bat, and the offensive line essentially pops up with their hats high, as the expression is, and they pass protect right away. I think I used to kind of believe that whole thing about you need to you know to run the ball well until I saw the 2010 and 2011 Packers who didn't really have a running game, and Aaron Rodgers would just destroy people with play action. I'm like, well, there's that one busted. I mean, he would he would fake to an invisible running back in empty sets. Right. You guys would fall for it. Right, right. No, I mean, I had this conversation with Jeff Saturday years ago when he was in our camp here at NFL Films about the uh, how good the Colts were off play action, and often they be great on their first series, and they never they never ran the ball. You know, they'd start a game with play action, and the linebackers would hit it so hard, and and they'd get you know I, I can remember one play a number of years ago I think early in the game they hit Dallas Clark for like an 80 yard touchdown off really hard play action, and they I don't think they'd run the ball yet. Yep. Uh, Arizona and Chicago, I think you and I discussed Chicago's defense, uh, you know, getting Vic Fonda. They're going to get better. Yeah, I watched that it's defense. A work, it's a work in progress. What are your thoughts? But they're, they're, uh, again, they, they're playing against a, a pretty good offense in terms of scheme and tactics. Bruce Arians does an unbelievable job. But I think this defense is going to get better. I'm not I'm not one to – I thought they actually did not play badly this week at all. I, I, I never thought that the Green Bay pass game was in rhythm. Um, I thought that a number of the throws were just individual plays that were made, and that's, that's okay. They count too. But I didn't think that they were badly beaten this week at all. Yeah. Um, and that Arizona offense, um, certainly with Palmer back there, uh, John Brown made some plays. Love that kid from last year. Um, just Palmer made some big time throws. Boy, by the he way. did, didn't he? There, there was some stuff going on there. So that's that's. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's throwing the ball really well. Um, they're a good team, you know, and 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 they do a lot of things offensively. Um, even Chris Johnson, you know, again, the test with a guy like Chris Johnson, he ran well on a couple of plays where the hole was well-defined and it was there. Yeah. The test for him is what happens when it's not blocked real well. Yeah, as in five feet to either side. <laughs> yeah. When no, you no, say I mean, well-defined, it needs to be well-defined all caps. That's, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, because, you know, he, but, but the point is, he still showed some juice. Yeah, he did. Some Zuzu, dare I say? 
Yeah, he was quick. I mean, yes, he he got through. There was one run again. It was well blocked, but he 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 showed that short area burst. Yep. Okay, he said, rubbing his hands in anticipation. New England at Buffalo. Now, Greg, I may be talking out of school here, but New England has this tight end. He appears to be really good, and no one seems to be able to cover him. His name is Rob Gronkowski. Have you heard of this guy? Yeah, and then. And, you know, I love listening to people talk. Based on a lot of comments I hear, I'm amazed that good receivers ever catch a ball because I think people think just double-team a guy in every play and he'll never catch a ball. Yeah. Well, that works with some guys, but when you, you know, I I loved (laughs) and I felt bad for Mike Mitchell, the Steelers defensive back, who said before that uh, Steelers-Patriots game, oh, we're just going to press him, and then uh, that doesn't work. Well, that, that that's fine, too, but, you know, believe it or not, offensive coaches, they get paid, too, and, you know, what happens with, with a lot of these great receivers, whether they're tight ends or wide receivers, is teams move them all around the formation. There's a lot of multiplicity of looks, and, you know, if you have a specific defensive call, and that's what defenses do, they don't just, you know, they don't just say, hey, line up however you feel like it. There's a defensive call. And, you know, if if the call is made, let's say you're, you're calling cover three and Rob Gronkowski lines up in a different spot, you're still playing cover three. That's the way it works. Well, I'm going to tell you, because I wrote about this on SI.com today. There's my own shameless plug. And there's some interesting stats, and I know you guys keep a lot of charting stats. Uh, this is from uh, NESN. They did a thing about what happened in 2014, and I'm pulling it up now, where when, whenever Rob Gronkowski split wide, and the stats were insane. Uh, Kevin Duffy right. at MassLive.com. Uh, with Gronk split wide, Brady completed 112 of 146 passes for 1,043 yards, eight touchdowns, and no picks. New England called a pass on 150 of the 154 plays in which Gronk was split wide. And charting is a little bit different. If you go 10 plus or minus margin for error percent, fine. But the thing I've noticed um, in watching Gronkowski over the last, say, six months is, yes, he's still dangerous out of in, in formation, in, in flex and in slot and seam routes and all that. But they really have turned him into an ISO guy, and that may be where he's at his most dangerous. Yeah, and again, it, 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 it's interesting how you want to match up. I mean, a perfect example. Okay, let's go back to the Super Bowl, all right, where he catches the touchdown on K.J. Wright. Now, it's easy to say, you know, what are you doing? Why is K.J. Wright on him? But as I recall, and I can't, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it was a three-by-one set, and he was the single receiver to the right. Do you remember this specifically? Uh, I think so. I know know that's when they'd switch to more man coverage. Yeah. And then, you know, it's... Sure, it's easy after the fact. I mean, it's like the Eagles game this week. All You know, you hear all whoop as well. Why don't they double Julio Jones on every play? You know, it, it... it doesn't work like that. Football's and, and, simple, Greg. Come on. Right, exactly. You know, but it, it's you know the offense knows this too. They move players around. They they, they motion them. They shift them. It's it's you know it's difficult. You know that's that's the way it works, and it's hard to do that. And sometimes you get caught defensively. Sometimes great players also make plays when they're well covered. You know that's the way it works too. I mean, look. We're talking about Gronk, but hey, the Eagles, you know, get Byron Maxwell to play man-to-man against quality receivers. So when he gets beat by by Julio Jones, 
then people say, well, that's a big mistake. you got to double him. Well, they brought him in to play man-to-man against good receivers. That's why he's here. You don't um, pay someone $63 million to be a bracket guy. Right. And now whether Maxwell is that guy or not, time will tell. And he may not be that guy. But the point is, is, you know, that's what teams do. And... You know, Gronkowski is obviously, you know, there are games, too, by the way, in which Gronkowski doesn't catch, you know, three touchdowns or seven balls. There's games where he catches three balls. And that's usually when they go, they want to play him, uh, you know, box and one to use a basketball term, and all of a sudden, hey, Julian Edelman's got all these free releases. Why did that happen? Because they got 12 guys over on Gronkowski. Here's, here's, I mean, it's one of those things where, okay, what did the Bills do last week? So I dial up the all-22 of the Colts game. And two plays stood out to me is very interesting. Um, remember the first Colts offensive play where Dwayne Allen was lined up wide left and Manny Lawson came out to cover him there? And then right. Dwayne Allen motioned inside and Lawson went right with him. And I thought, oh, geez, that's not some sort of you know tricky conceit. He's not just out there to, to – they, they want to have Lawson cover Dwayne Allen. And Dwayne Allen's a good tight end. He's not Gronkowski. He's a pretty good tight end. We both like him. Yep. And then I'm watching three plays later, Allen's in the right slot, and Lawson's over there. And Lawson's the one who jams him off his release, and he runs this, uh, this little uh, out route about eight yards downfield. And Lawson and I think one of the cornerbacks came down to tackle him. And then I'm so I hypothesized in this article that what they might do is have Lawson follow Gronkowski around as the first level disruptor of timing and route right off the, the line of scrimmage. And Stefan Gilmore has said, I want Gronk at the second level. And I was listening to Rodney Harrison on NBC Sports kind of espousing that theory. Um, and Rex Ryan in his press conference today said, you know, we're really impressed with Manny Lawson's intelligence. We're going to use him more. And I'm starting to think to myself, hmm, this might be the bracket. Because here's the thing about bracketing Gronkowski. A, he can still beat it, and B, it opens up so much more stuff. But to turn that on its head, just to, to conclude my overly long point here, the thing about the Bills is they can get pressure with four. So you got a back seven. You can do all kinds of crazy stuff. Correct, but the one thing about the Patriots, and this is what's very interesting, is they're equipped for the pass game. So very rarely is this pressure factor into the equation. I mean, there's always plays that does, but they're not a deep drop pass team. Now, you know, Brian Billick has talked about this ad nauseum. I've read it in books. He's written, I've heard him say it many times. You can, if you really want to take the player away, I mean, Billy went to where you commit major resources to speak to do that. You can, and the question is, what price are you willing to pay? Because, you know, if you're willing to live with, with maybe not such a great matchup on Julian Edelman, or, you know, uh, let's look at Scott Chandler, okay? No, no one would think of him as, oh, we got to do it. We have to do something special for Scott Chandler, but he's six seven, two hundred seventy pounds. So what happens if they get in the red zone and then he catches a touchdown? You know, so you can take things away if you really, really want to. It's just what what what's the risk? What's the price? What historically has Rex done against? Let me okay. Let me ask you this. Um, and I know you don't. I, I know you don't like to talk about what would you do, but let, let me. So let me phrase it this way. What in your mind, based on all the New England tape you've seen, is the ideal way to cover Rob Gronkowski if there is one which there isn't? Well, in an ideal world, if he's in line, you'd like to slow his release off the line of scrimmage because 
you can't stop it because he's bigger and more powerful than probably anybody who's going to try. But you want to disrupt. Now, the issue arises when, for instance, you just talked about Minnie Lawson. What they'll do is they'll split him, they'll motion him, they'll, they'll do things that prevent you from disrupting his release. Okay? That's the way it works. So now, at, at that point, then you have to have a second defender because if it's Manny Lawson, and, and Lawson is a big athlete and, and maybe is one of those guys who's best equipped to, to play against a guy like Gronk, but he's not going to match up one-on-one. So then you need another player. So who is going to be that other player? Is it a corner? Is it a safety? Is is it a function of the routes that he runs? You know, because if he if he runs in the middle, you have you have players. You know, a number of players who could possibly be involved. If he runs, you know, uh, toward toward the outside on a wheel type route, you're limited in how you can do that. So when he's in line, the key is is to try to uh, to disrupt his release. You have to try to do that. Yep. Well, certainly an interesting matchup there. Um, and I, I want to talk about Tyrod Taylor more, but I feel like we're going to run out of time. <laughs> um, San Diego at Cincinnati. Let's talk about Cincinnati's offense and what we can tell from, you know, week one. Because it's, it's – it, did you see improvement beyond who they I, I was really disappointed in watching the Raiders D. I thought yeah. they'd be better. And, again, it's only week one. But I thought they had all kinds of problems in their zone concepts. Um, I mean, I caught, you know, I first caught a seam route that uh, no one no one ran down the seam with him. It yeah. was cover three, and it was it basically ran double seams, one on each side, and no one, no one ran down the seam. If you run double seams against single high, one of the seams will be open. One thing about San Diego, we, and we do it, we talk about their offense a lot, and you hear a lot of people say, and I tend to agree, John Pagano is a guy who doesn't get enough, you know, quote-unquote credit as a coordinator. What do the Chargers do? What will, what will they do against the Bengals' offensive preferences? Well, I think the char- the, uh, the Chargers are pretty multiple on defense. Pagano doesn't get credit for that. Uh, I-, I think they do a lot of different things, and they do them. He seems to have a great feel for when to do them. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, he's not necessarily, hey, you're going to get blitz all the time. You know, he's not Rex Bryan or Todd Bowles. Uh, but I think he's very selective and very creative with his blitzes. They're very effective. He has a great safety in Eric Weddle. Um, I think Melvin Ingram has, you know, when he's healthy, is proving to be a pretty dynamic edge player. So I think they have good pieces, and I think they have good schemes. And I think, you know, Andy Dalton was an extremely comfortable quarterback last week. And, you know, I know Andy Dalton takes a lot of grief, but he's still he's a quality NFL starter. And if he's comfortable in the pocket, he's going to beat you. The way I would put it with Dalton is when things are colorless, i.e. there's not rush in his face and he's not seeing things he can't quite get really quickly, he's fine. And then you start to... Exactly, and that's the way the game played out last week. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are times when I've thought that Carson Palmer is like that. There are times, you know, a lot of quarterbacks are like that. It's just Dalton. Most are, you know, yeah. for, when you really get down to it. But, you know, some end up being worse than others in, in, in rushing themselves and losing their ability to see things with clarity. And Dalton fits into that category more than others. But when he's 
clean, and of course this should be the case if you're an NFL starter, but when he's clean and comfortable, he's he's going to make throws. Yeah, if you can't do it then, you should probably go get a job in broadcasting or something. Um, so, <laughs> Tennessee at Cleveland, and you were generous enough to help me with the All-22 piece I did on Mariota, and so just to, to briefly get into that, as much as Mariota looked comfortable in the pocket, that bang through he made to Delaney Walker, that first one, the 20-yarder where Levante David dropped and the defensive back was yep. converging, he had like a two-yard window, and he just hit it. And I'm like, okay, that's not scheme. That's not spread. If Phillip Rivers made that throw, all you doubters and detractors would be flipping out. You better accept this guy as a quarterback. That said... What Ken Wisenhunt and his staff did to merge the Oregon play action and the package plays was tremendous. It was just a it was a beautiful symmetry of scheme and, and player. What did you see overall in that regard? Yeah. And I think one point needs to be made, Doug. Almost every team now uses package plays. It's no longer just, you know, an Oregon scheme or a college scheme. Almost every team uses some form of package plays. So this was not unique. It's it's something he's obviously very familiar with, Mariota, and he's comfortable with it. Now, the, you mentioned one throw, the one to Walker on third and ten. The other throw that really stood out to me was when he hit Harry Douglas for 20 yards. It was a second down throw, but he was actually looking for Kendall Wright, and Wright slipped, and his route therefore was not defined within the timing of the drop, and Mariota had to come off that, and he went to Douglas. Those were the two throws that, when I think about his future, stand out to me. When you get schemed plays that work perfectly, and the quarterback hits them, sure, you still have to make them, but that, that doesn't say as much as these other two plays. Now, the one thing you do have to keep in mind, they played against a fairly predictable defense and a slow defense. Fairly predictable? That's kind. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being kind, but I mean, they played against a predictable defense and a slow defense, and and you know, it won't be the case every week. Now, he's playing Mike Pettin this week. Yeah. Now, Mike Pettin is from the Rex Ryan school, uh-huh. so Mario is going to see a lot of things, and We'll find out how he handles them. Now, he's shown tremendous poise and comfort in the way he plays, and that just may be in his and he may be a really comfortable kid. Well, my, my sense is, knowing what I know about Petten's defensive structures, I mean, there's some disguise, there, you know, there's some movement, there are some hybrid things. But I think he's gonna he's gonna watch that Tampa Bay defensive tape and he's gonna go, okay, you know, our guys are not gonna bite. We may spy zones, we may do different things. I think Mariota is going to see, you know, well, for one thing, Tampa Bay's, you know, a 4-3 cover 2 Tampa 2 team, and they play some man. Cleveland's a 3 They couldn't be more different, really, is what you're saying. These two defenses couldn't be more different. Exactly. So that's, I mean, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how Mariota um, does with that. I don't want to get into the Manziel thing because he may not start and blah, 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 but Tennessee's defense, I thought, as much as we talked about Tampa Bay's inflexibility in the passing game, um, I, I kind of liked how Tennessee's defense looks, but I don't know that we're going to see that until later in the year because they're not facing a lot of huge challenges right now. 
Yeah, and, and look, they, their defense looked very fast and very active, but they also played against a slow Bucks offense. So the question is, you know, can they continue to play that way? But it, it certainly helps that they can sort of get their sea legs and play well uh, against, uh, and they'll probably play well this week against Cleveland. That doesn't really present a lot of individual weapons, clearly. Um, but yeah, I thought they, they played fast. I thought a rat looked good. Um, and, you know, I thought that. Um, Lady Ray Wilson, who was, a, I think, a second-round pick a few years ago, has been a bit of a disappointment now is their third corner. I thought he played very well. Yeah. Uh, Atlanta at, at the Giants. And you mentioned the San Francisco 49ers sort of playing to their personality. If there's one team that surprised me with their resurgence and difference in personality, I would say it was the Falcons, and it was the... It was the aggressiveness on defense, which didn't surprise me. I know Dan Quinn pretty well, um, but it was the it was the assignment correctness with that aggressiveness in the yep. first game. And discipline. They, yes, they weren't real aggressive. They were aggressive in in sort of a conservative way. I mean, they, they weren't. It wasn't high percentage blitz, obviously, but they played with great discipline and great coverage discipline. Yep. And then on offense, um, boy, it was. It was interesting to me because all of a sudden, hey, you know what? When Kyle Shanahan has players, he's a pretty good schemer. He can scheme guys open. He can create time for quarterbacks. He can mask deficiencies in an offensive line. I think of any offense or defense as far as sheer improvement and playing in a scheming to your players – I would be hard-pressed to come up with a better example than what Kyle Shanahan did with that Falcons offense on Monday night. Well, one thing he did is he lined up over 20 snaps out of 21 personnel with a fullback on the field, DeMarco, which is a very high number in today's NFL. And when they threw the ball out of 21 personnel, Doug, they were 8 for 9 for 150 yards. Hmm. And... You know, in fact, I didn't think Matt Ryan had a great game. He left two touchdowns on the field, or the Falcons might have won this game going away. Um, But uh, I thought, and Tevin Coleman, I thought, looked very good. I don't know what you thought. I I thought he ran hard. I thought he he finished. Uh, I thought that he showed the downhill instinct needed in the the predominant zone run game. Uh, I thought that it was a positive performance for Tevin Coleman. Well, the two picks, the Thurman pick and the Kiko Alonso pick. And Kiko Alonso, I mean, that was an amazing play, but... My... Yeah, but the ball was underthrown by by a significant amount. That that was an easy touchdown. Yeah, and... The, the, the other one that, that should have been a touchdown, which was underthrown, was he had Devontae Freeman on a wheel route yep. versus Connor Barwin, and a good throw there, and it was a touchdown. And I don't know if this, you know, it, it's my impression of Ryan. I don't know if it's correct, but it's, you know, and I remember discussing Matt Ryan with you five years ago, and I probably said the same thing back then, is he gets a picture in his mind of how things are supposed to go, and he finds it hard to divorce himself from that picture when he needs to in the timing of the down. And that it's the thing I think that's always made me most nervous about him. And I thought both of those interceptions showed characteristics of that. Well, to be honest with you, they were both the right throws. They threw it to the exact right receiver. The, the first one by Alonzo was a designed, schemed, red zone play. They got exactly what they wanted. So that was, he threw it exactly to the right spot. He just underthrew it by a significant amount. And really the same with the second one. They got the matchup they wanted. So that wasn't a function of him focusing in on something he shouldn't focus in on. 
Yeah. Uh, St. Louis at Washington. I really don't want to get into the Redskins drama right now. We don't have time. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. And we know about St. Louis's defense. Let's talk about St. Louis's offense against, and, and as I discussed before, I think Seattle's defense is adapting to a few things. But um, tell me what you saw from Nick Foles, who you're very familiar with, and that offense. I mean, the offensive line, you know, they were just as inexperienced as Seattle. I thought they played a lot better than Seattle's line did. Yeah, I thought they were they were up and down. They were uneven, but they held their own. They weren't overpowered. You know, it wasn't a case where the Seahawks line uh, took over the game. Um, Foles, I thought, I, Foles to me is an odd player because there are times where he stands and delivers under duress, and you think, wow, that's that's pretty good. But then there's other times where he plays fast and breaks down, and that's always made worse, you know, pretty much always made worse under pressure. And so he walks that fine line. Um, the Rams were very base with their personnel. Clearly, Tavon Austin is their wild card. He lines up all over. He scored a touchdown as an eye back, basically, or it might have been the pistol, but he was basically the eye back. Um, and, they, and he did that a number of times in the game. They're clearly trying to get him more involved. Uh, you know, I thought that they, they had a great feel for that particular opponent. Don't forget it's a division opponent when they played the, the uh, Seahawks. And I thought they had a great feel for how to attack and break down the Seahawks' foundational cover three. And it, they were very effective doing it. So a uh, couple guys full practice this week, uh, Trey Mason and some guy Todd Gurley, who could be pretty good. So interesting. Yes, yeah, Gurley, are they, because remember a couple of weeks ago they said he wouldn't play until week four. Has that been moved up now uh, that he practiced? Is he, he going to play this week? I don't know, but he's been, he's been full participation in practice. And, wow. Oh, boy, that, that – <laughs> if he's anything, like I mean that, that's a guys. really good backfield tandem because I, I I think Trey Mason could be a feature back by himself. Yep. But he's not as good as Gurley, obviously, but I mean he's a pretty good player. Yep. Uh, we're going to skip a couple games here. Dallas at Philadelphia. Uh, Randy Gregory out. Uh, yeah, it's a shame. It, it really is because he was playing so well, and then Greg Hardy isn't back yet. Tell me what you think about Tyrone Crawford because I I think he's Love him. he's a great three tech in Rod Marinelli's defense. He can flip out to end. He's going to be their primary pass rusher, um, and he's a guy that doesn't get a lot of prop. Had a lot of hurries last year. Was dominant at times against that you know and, and it, you know Giants offensive line is moving stuff around, but he was taking double teams and just shredding them. And I think that's a guy that people need to watch is Tyrone Crawford. Couldn't agree more. I, I, I like him like at Boise State. I thought he'd be a good pro, and he's really come on. Uh, and you made a great point. I think he can line up, obviously, in their base 3-4. He plays three technique, D tackle. But I think he has the skill set. If, if you want to rush him as a DN in, in nickel or dime, they played 12 snaps a dime this, this past week. Um, I think he's capable of that as well. So Dallas's offense, um, and it's interesting going up against that Philly defense, and they do a lot of interesting stuff. And having Barwin and Alonzo on the field at the same time is going to be very interesting for enemy offenses because those are two linebackers with which you can do just about anything. Dallas's offense, I mean, they didn't do much with Des Bryant anyway. So you saw, here's Randall, here's, um, oh gosh darn it, the other back. I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> McFadden? No, not McFadden. The guy who caught the most. Dunbar. Yes, Dunbar. Well, Dunbar played on the final two series pretty exclusively, which tells me he's their best pass protector. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I see him not in a, I'm not, I'm not comparing him to this player, but if they have a Reggie Bush role, I think he's the one who gets it. How does Dallas's offensive construction look? Now you don't have DeMarco Murray. Now you don't have Des Bryant. What do they do? Well, what was interesting is in the first half, they had 24 called passes and 13 called runs. Now, I don't know if they see themselves as a different offense or if that just was the first game, and that won't be the case. We don't know the answer to that yet. It was the first game. But this was not a run-first offense like it was last year. Now, I think... Joseph Randall has a lot of quickness. I think he's quicker than DeMarco Murray, but Randall does not have natural power. Randall goes down at the first tackle, so he doesn't gain those extra yards that sustain your offense. The other thing about Randall, just to interject, that I don't like is I'll see him muddling around looking for openings at times. I remember uh, doing tape on one Redskins game and thinking, hit the hole, come on, hit the hole, hit the hole, it's right there. And he just kind of... I don't know if that's inexperienced, but I saw him sort of running around in circles waiting for something to happen. You can't do that. No, and then, so it'll be interesting because they know what he is, and they're not going to tell you that. If they believe he can't be Murray and can't run with, with power, they're not going to say, oh, he can't do that. So, But you'll know by how they play offense, and we'll see if how they play in the first half when the game was you know, a normal game, because obviously at the end of the game they had a score, so they were in shotgun and throwing it on every play. So the overall pass-run ratio numbers are skewed, but in the first half when they're not skewed, they they threw the ball almost twice as much as they ran it. Well, it's something you say a lot, that teams, you know, coach is not going to come out very rarely. Um, Jay Gruden seems to have a predilection for this, but teams are not, coaches are not going to come out and say, oh, this guy played like crap. But as you like to say, teams will tell you how they feel about their players by how they use them. And I think Correct. That, you know that late in the late in the game, you see Dunbar out there more. I think that that could be a, a forward moving trend. Philly's defense, you've got. Um, They're concerned. Yeah, it is. Elaborate, please. Oh, well, first of all, I think they've got some issues with pass rush. They have to scheme it because they don't have an individual pass rusher at this point in time, so they've got to scheme it. And they want to play a ton of man. And I think right now there's a concern as to whether they can do that. Look, they signed Byron Maxwell. You know, it's it's whether Byron Maxwell can line up and play man against high-level corners, I think that's a question. Okay? And he's now playing the opposite side from which he played in Seattle. And you know, that, that's the transition. It's it's just, hey, line up on the other side and you're good to go. Uh, Nolan Carroll, yes, he's had a nice training camp and a nice preseason, but he's also never been a full-time starting corner in the NFL. So they have two corners that, in the way they want to use them, are questions. Yeah. And I think sooner than later, and it's no knock on this player because he's had a great career, but I think DeMarco, uh, D'Amico Ryans will, will not be on the field very much as time goes on. Yeah. Um, the real quick, the first half, second half Eagles offense. What were your thoughts about that flip? Um, you know, I don't see that as as alarming per se because I think that's the nature of their offense. I think we we've all sort of gotten into this mode that the Eagles are just going to score every time they get the ball because you know they play fast and no one can stop them. Well, that that's never been the case. So they have stretches where they don't score. They go you know they have short drives and then they have stretches where they look really efficient and really good. They're a short passing team at this 
at this moment in time, they do not have a viable vertical receiver. I think they believe it will be Nelson Aguilar. Only Tom will answer that. But they really don't have any ability to stretch a field. Their, their offense is built on speed, tempo, and, and stretching the defense horizontally and hitting short passes. Yep. And I think Atlanta relatively speaking, it gave them a lot of those short passes. Mm -hmm. I think they said, if you want to throw the ball for six yards, throw it for six yards. We'll tackle you, and then you'll have to do it again, and again, and again, and again. And can you do that on ten drives? You know, and we don't think you can. I think, well, I saw this enough in Seattle, and part of it was due to the personnel he had, uh, including that chancellor guy who doesn't seem to be anywhere uh, around, is they, Dan Quinn seemed to relish those short passes because, okay, yep. you're going to get six yards, you're going get, to get about a foot after the catch, and you're going to need about 16 Advil after this game. And I saw a very similar construct in Atlanta, had not seen it before, so I think that travels with Dan Quinn wherever he goes. Yeah, and then they played basically single high safety on on almost every single play in the game, and you know it was cover three, it was man free, but they played single high, and you know I think the Eagles, to me, the Eagles don't have receivers that you that a defense necessarily feels you have to take away a receiver. Jordan Matthews will catch a ton of balls because the nature of the offense, but I don't think teams go into a game and I could be wrong and say we better stop Jordan Matthews or we're in trouble. Only the slot corner, because that's where he's. What's that? Yeah, only the slot corner, because that's where he's at his most dangerous. Is the slot? Right? Yeah, and that's, I think that's where he's at his best. He's yeah. good at that. Yeah, um, I could go on for an hour on this game, but Seattle Green Bay. We've discussed it a little bit. I want to bring up two points. Um, not just Seattle's offensive line, but Seattle's entire blocking scheme. I mean, there are a couple plays where. They were supposed to combo Aaron Donald, and they just they, they missed assignments uh, and let him through. And, I mean, Aaron Donald doesn't need that help. He's pretty good. God, I mean, it was just it was well, amazing. Uh, you know, we, we looked back at both games last year. We wanted to get a feel for Seattle's run game against Green Bay and how Green Bay played it. And where, where Seattle had their most success, when you look at the two games, is when Wilson was in the gun and they were, it was 11 personnel because Green Bay played nickel, and they really had – far and away their most success running out of that personnel package with Wilson in the gun. Because what Wilson gives you in the gun is, whether it's called or not, he gives you the read option potential and he gives you that element. So it always holds the backside. And if it is read option, it holds the backside theoretically even more because that unblocked player has to be careful. So uh, that's where they had their most success. I would expect them to run the ball effectively. Uh, Russell Wilson, we're talking about guys with play-action swings. Russell Wilson, <laughs> the opposite of Phillip Rivers. Only Alex Smith had more pl a higher play-action percentage last year uh, than Russell Wilson, 30.8. In this game, about 9% of the time, and he wasn't very efficient. And what this tells me, yep. and the eye, the eye in the sky don't lie, play-action takes time. He doesn't have it. Period. End of story. He that the the lack of time he has, and it, it's a limited offense, and he's still figuring out how to use it. But the lack of time in in or out of the pocket for him, I think it's taken a reduced route structure and reduced it even more. I think that that that's an offense that's playing at a handicap right now. I would say that's fair. And, and you, the other thing is is. Because of its height, you don't want him. You don't want to design things where he's got to sit in the pocket. Right. 
because ultimately, even if your O-line was better, at some point, the, the bodies do get closer to you, no matter how good your O-line is. And, you know, that's where I think there he struggles a bit. There are times he doesn't see things, and that's to be expected. He's under 5'11". Yep. But, yes, this is a pass offense right now that I'm going to be anxious to see them go through the year here because, as you and I have discussed many times, it's not real sophisticated. It's not real creative. It's very basic. Um, and at some point, I think, I think, you know, you know, look, maybe if their defense becomes dominant again and, and Marshawn Lynch has another great year, maybe it's, it's a moot point. But I think at some point they're going to have to do more in the pass game. Yep. Uh, I was watching NFL Turning Point uh, last night, which is my second favorite NFL television show next to ESPN's NFL matchup, of course. Well done, Mr. Farrar. Well done. Boom! And I don't know if you saw it, but they had this... I didn't. They had this really interesting uh, piece on Clay Matthews' game uh, game clinching interception of Jay Cutler where they had a, it was a 3 by one It was a reduced trips to one side. And I remember it. They and that was early in the play, and there was a catch out of it, and they went with the same formation on that late play, and Matthews read it and jumped the route, and I, I think, and I remember when Matthews came out, of, Clay Matthews came out of USC, and I was doing some tape on him in his second or third year, and I'm thinking, you know, this guy can cover, and I think one of the things that makes him so valuable as an inside linebacker, and I think they split him about 50-50 inside-outside, is not only does he has he has the athleticism to cover, but now he has the understanding of what's in front of him, of how to do it, of what's sort of all around him. And when people think about, well, okay, if Jimmy Graham has enough time to run a route before Russell Wilson gets killed, who's going to cover him? I think Clay Matthews becomes a major factor in what Dom Capers wants to do in pass defense. Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting play because Jay Culler did not factor Matthews into this coverage at that part of the field. You're right, it was a three-by-one set, and it was closed, actually, to the to the boundary, and it was the tight end, Bennett, who sort of ran a quick route and looked right back, and Matthews came from the other side. And yep. there's no way that Culler factored Matthews into the equation. Yep. Very interesting stuff there. Um, final Monday night matchup, uh, not final game, not the final, we're just, just starting here. Uh, <laughs> Jets at Indianapolis. And, you know, we're, we're rating that Bills defense highly and justifiably so by what they did to Andrew Luck. I think the Colts offense has other issues beyond what the Bills did to them and beyond what can be explained away in one game. What challenges, what different types of challenges does the Jets defense face with Todd Bowles? Well, you're dealing with a situation where last week the Colts offense, because you don't just blitz a quarterback, as you know, you blitz an offense. Yep. The, the, the Colts offense was blitzed by Rex Ryan on 49% of, of Lux dropbacks. And they were not very effective against Blitz. Now he's playing Todd Bowles, who's going to do the same thing. Now, he does it a little differently, different concepts, but Todd Bowles blitzes everybody. And I think, they're, to me, and it's easy to say, and, and you know, it's a cliche and all that, but somewhere along the line, this team's going to have to run the football. Uh-huh. 
and they're going to have to try to stay with it a little bit, you know, and see if they can generate some sustainability, some consistency with their run game. They signed Frank Gore. Now, I'm not suggesting he needs to carry 30 times, but I think they've got to try to stabilize their own offense and calm down pressure-type defenses. Well, they need to create sustainability outside of a couple of franchise players, and that was the whole idea of getting Andre Johnson and Frank Gore in there. And it's you know it's one week, okay, but you didn't see any of that at all. No. Jets no, off- you didn't. Yeah, um, Jets and offense. Their O line is also it's still not a great O line, and it's it's tough to play as. Great as Luck is, and and I, I think he's great. I think it's hard to play that way. Uh, against Cleveland's defense, what did you see from uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick? Had a good game, sort of doing what he does. Uh, Chris Ivory looked good. Bilal Powell looked good. Uh, Brandon Marshall had some nice plays. It, how do you? How far do you think that offense can go in a general sense with Fitzpatrick at the helm and against a Colts defense that you know you're, you're kind of waiting to see what happens there. Um, well, to be honest with you, I think um, I, I think what stood out to me more about their defense, their offense, was not Fitzpatrick, but was what they did in terms of personnel. Uh, they lined up with three and or four wide receivers on a really high percentage of their snaps, and and I remember doing you know, charting that, and I'm going to tell you what that number is right now. Uh, I'm pretty sure I, I charted. Oh, 72% of the Jeff snaps had either three or four wide receivers on the field, wow. and when they ran the ball out of those multiple wide receiver uh, packages, they were 23 for 136. Wow. It's kind of like the inverse of the Falcons passing out of uh, eye formation. Yep. Wow, that's interesting. So, I mean, that to me was sort of the the takeaway point from the Jets' offense. Interesting. Well, a great slate of games to watch, Greg, and thanks, as always, for breaking it down as only you can. Uh, We'll be back next week to talk about week three, and uh, thanks again, as always, for your time. Doug, my pleasure. Look forward to it.